Welcome to the Gateworld Podcast. You are listening to episode number 12 of the Gateworld Podcast. Thanks for tuning into the show this week. Today, David and I are talking about last Friday's new episode of Stargate Atlantis, Tracker. We also have brand new details on Stargate Universe to discuss, and we'll preview Gateworld's upcoming interview with actor Michael Shanks. If you nod off during this episode, have yourself checked for sleep-inducing parasites, because it ain't our fault. The Gateworld Podcast starts right now. My name is Darren Sumner, and with me this week once again is GateWorld's co-editor, David Reed. Good evening, Darren. Good evening. We have some big Stargate Universe news to kick off the show before we get to our main discussion of Tracker this week. So what we'll do is we'll go back and forth and read one of the descriptions, and then we'll just sort of give a little spiel as to what we like so far, what we are maybe concerned about so far, and how we hope the show turns out. Um, one thing, of course, that we do want to say up front is this is casting notices. This stuff is not intended for fans to read. This is intended for casting agents and actors to read to sort of get a sense of what the producers are looking for when they come into audition. So this is sort of looking behind the curtain that, that fans are usually not necessarily privy to. I would just caution people not to put too much stock in the exact words of how the characters are described here. I agree. And also, like you were saying the other day, you know, it's so much of it depends on the actor um, and the actor's performance itself. So Yeah, and the yeah. dialogue that gets written in the scripts. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's mm-hmm. Be it good or bad. <laughs> Yeah, that's how we're really going to come to know these characters, I think, is through the episodes, what they do and what they say, not by some little casting agent's blurb. But this stuff's interesting and fun, and we get to know some of the some of the names of who is going to be on the new team when Stargate Universe comes, comes around next summer. Yeah, or possibly going to be, unless they bring in someone like Paul Davis or Rodney McKay, you never know. Yep, this is, of course, all tentative. The show's in pre-production right now. Uh, last last uh, time this came around for Atlantis, back in 2004, a lot of fans might remember uh, one of the characters never even appeared on the show. Um, Dr. Benjamin Ingram was somebody that appeared on the casting notice for Atlantis as a, an African-Canadian scientist. And uh, David Hewlett actually auditioned for that part, and they decided to, to replace Ingram with McKay. So... So, with all those caveats out of the way, let's talk about the team. First up is Colonel Everett Young, and here's how the casting notes describe him. He's 40s, handsome, capable, a former SG team leader. Like the Jack O'Neill of 10 years ago, but Young's edges have tended to sharpen over time. He requested permission to serve the remainder of his commission on Earth upon marrying his wife, Haley, two years ago. But for now, he's temporary commander of a secret off-world base. The loss of two members of his team several years ago has taught him never to take anything for granted and be prepared for anything. He stays on top of his team, so they stay alive. And the casting notice indicates that they're looking for a star name only for the role of Colonel Young. I imagine, like, a star would have to be someone who has appeared in movies or is, like, has been one of the leads of a television show previously. I don't know if necessarily a lead. I think it's generally someone who the general public, above and beyond the the hardcore Stargate audience or hardcore Sci-Fi Channel audience, would would know and recognize. So, what do you think of Colonel Young so far? They're trying to maybe recapture Jack O'Neill, circa 1997. Well, I would hope that not every team leader for Stargate in perpetuity is modeled after Jack O'Neill. Um, I wouldn't mind having someone who's a little bit more serious, like Michael Ironside. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I was a big fan of Sequest, and I liked uh, Roy Scheider's portrayal of Nathan Bridger, but Michael Ironside, after the first few episodes where I couldn't stand him, I, I grew to love his seriousness and love his commitment to his people. And, you know, I mean, I, I don't necessarily think that every team leader on Stargate has to be a funny man. You know, um, I, I hope that they're willing to, to take that up a notch. I like that this character has a sharper edge. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that. 
and I like the fact that he's been wounded as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I hope that uh, that they cast that role very well. Well, obviously, I hope that they cast all of them well, but him in particular has got to be has got to be very very good. You know, he he has to be of the caliber of of Richard Dean Anderson. You know, absolutely as as the lead of the show and as the the star name carrying the show's promotion largely. This is going to be the one to watch to see who they cast in this role. It's sort of a make or break for the show, I think. Um, but you know, John Shepard was described in many ways similar to a young Jack O'Neill, uh, and yeah. he he worked out obviously to be a very different character. I think that if they are if they are setting themselves that this character has to, has to meet with the caliber of Richard Dean Anderson, I think they're selling themselves short. Because I hope that they're striving to do even better than that. Yeah. Um, I hope they're I hope they're striving to get someone even more powerful. And that you know, I mean, I don't think Richard Dean Anderson needs to be the be all end all for Stargate. I think Stargate should could could even be setting its sights to even to even higher celebrities, even more more well known celebrities. Yeah, if we could get a really capable actor like a, a, a Christian Slater who has had a, a large movie presence, that'd be fantastic. Get somebody mm-hmm. like that to come to television to head a Stargate show, and obviously, you know, people people have been uh, Hollywood has has had a look at Stargate. Look at Bo Bridges. Look at Lou Gossett Jr. You know, two fine fine actors um, who have uh, had had roles on the show. You know, I wish we had more of Lou Gossett. I love him. Mm. So, and I and I hope that they um, that they that they find someone great for this role. You know, I hope that they don't just. They don't say, "Well, this is good enough." You know, I hope they say, "No, let's let's keep going until we find just the right fit," because they're going to be stuck with them for a while. Yeah, that's true. Well, who's next? We have uh, Tamara John, who is described. Uh, they they pref- they preferably want someone Asian, um, uh, or they can go with all ethnicities. Someone in the twenty to twenty-five year old range. Uh, previous SGC field medic of Captain Grade. She has some off-world experience. She's beautiful, tough, smart, and capable. Paramedic-level training. And she's able to triage serious injury. Uh, She has a modest background, dreamed of being a doctor, but couldn't afford medical school, and the Air Force was her best option. And she ends up being the most medically inclined person on the ship, but is overwhelmed by the lack of knowledge and experience treating seriously wounded and ill patients. And she also lacks the medicine and supplies and has to make do. I think that could be a really interesting character. This is one of the most interesting characters, I think, in the casting notice because it actually tells you a little bit about once she gets on board the Destiny, where she's going to find herself and some of the conflict that she's going to find herself with. Uh, I think it's, it would be fantastic to have an Asian on Stargate for the first time as a main character. Uh, and, you know, it's, yeah. it's really hard when we're thinking about potential people who could be cast in these roles not to go straight for Grace Park from Battlestar Galactica. Yeah. I was also thinking a lot about uh, Yoonjin Kim from Lost. Uh, I've always been a big fan of her, mm-hmm. and you know she's uh, she's a little bit older than uh, than twenty to twenty five. She's actually thirty four, so she's a little bit older. But I think she could effectively play a a younger character. But obviously, she's going to be busy in Lost. You know, someone someone like that who's strong willed, um, but has a, a very established acting presence. You know, I'd be a really big. F- I'd, I'd really like to see someone like that come over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be a really big boost to the show. But, you know, Grace Park has actually appeared on Stargate before. She was uh, Lieutenant Satterfield in Season right. five's Proving Ground. So. And she's available again, too. So Yeah. Interesting. She's definitely and- gone on to bigger things than Lieutenant Satterfield in the years since. <laughs> yes, definitely. And I have to admit, I have a thing for uh, for South Korean women. So, <laughs> <laughs> you and me both. But that's a topic for a different podcast. Well, Chloe Carpenter is described as twenty-ish. She's stunning and sexy, daughter of a U.S. senator, silver spoon upbringing, and a little spoiled, but not stupid either. Politically and socially savvy, Chloe dreams of following in her father's footsteps, but now she's a bit of a party girl in her first year at an Ivy League school. Her father's tragic death and the dire circumstances of being trapped on a spaceship seriously tests her character. This is one of the characters who has caused a bit of controversy because she's 20-ish, sexy party girl. Uh, What do you think? 
you know what? I want to see an ugly girl on Stargate. I really want to see an <laughs> ugly, heavy set woman on Stargate. You know, I think it would be a huge ratings booster out there. You know, I mean, no makeup at all. You know, she's got some rims of fat. I think that I, you know, I think it would sell it. I think it would the the Hurley of Stargate, of Stargate Universe. You know, I think that would be a great paradigm. You're, you're, I think you're hinting at a really important point, which is that, that a lot of people have take issue with the fact that Stargate and other television shows obviously cast exclusively and often ridiculously beautiful people. Yeah. But you know what? I will say this, and I'd like to go back to Lost for a minute. Look at Shannon. You know, Shannon was a beach bum. She, you know, didn't want to do any work, and she turned into one of, in my opinion, one of the most complicated characters of that show. So I'm... I hope that they'd be uh, they'd be willing to go for that. You know, that's that's one of my, com- my one of the few complaints I always had about Sam, because Sam was Sam had very few personal flaws and was essentially a superwoman. Mm. You know, a lot like Daniel. Daniel, I mean, Daniel could be criticized for that too. He could speak twenty five different languages and he's only twenty five years old. But you know, there there was rarely a problem which could phase Sam. And uh, I hope that this this character is given some depth in, in that area. And you know, I think uh, I think that if she is written well, we we will accept this character for what it for what it is and what it can be. Chloe is, I really have to say, again, another make or break character for universe because she could the way that, that this short little paragraph describes her, she could be a total cliche that's just absolutely annoying to watch and sinks the show into, you know, Stargate 90210, or she could give the hint that that's what she is and then become something totally different, mm-hmm. something that's very much deeper and conflicted. Um, what I'm really interested in is is how a character like this ends up on a Stargate team on board the Destiny, an ancient ship traveling uh, from galaxy to galaxy. And the senator thing, I think, maybe hints at what they might do. I think maybe uh, maybe she's going to go through uh, with her father, the senator, and then maybe he gets killed in the first episode or something like that. Just speculating. That's a strong possibility there. Like, a, a lot of... about This this particular set of sides, you know, I mean, these are the characters and these are the points that are going to be probably introduced in the pilot. Now, where it goes from there is... Um, is what I think we're all really interested in, you know, because like all these points are going to be hit on in those two hours. Yeah, the writers absolutely do. Obviously, as they're moving from episode to episode through season one, are, are going to take liberties to diverge from some of this if they decide that that's the best thing for the character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And we have uh, Eli Hitchcock. 20 to 25 year old, total slacker, but utter genius. Mathematics, computers, anything he puts his mind to, a cervic sense of humor, a social outcast, comes from a broken home, lacks confidence because his true intelligence has never really been recognized, like Matt Damon's character from Goodwill Hunting with a little Jack Black thrown in. I saw this and I was I was a little scared that it was going to be another Rodney, just with a different set of personality traits. Mm, I don't see Eli Hitchcock as a Rodney at all, actually. Um, really? I see Eli Hitchcock as probably the most cliched of the characters that are here so far. seems like every every TV show nowadays that has any sort of you know government organization or you know, military team or something has this character who is the the computer whiz and he's a slacker the untucked shirt and the messy hair and maybe glasses and it's just I would really love for them to do something a little bit more outside of the box with Eli mm-hmm. yeah I thought of uh, the rat man from the core he's a big hacker but mm-hmm. a slacker and the, yeah hacker uh, the slacker government... and they're on TV and film they're a dime a dozen but you know I think this could be I think this could be one of the more interesting characters that they could mine from if they if they write him correctly you know, I think that could be a real diamond in the rough. And it, again, it all depends on who they pick. Mm. You know, it's uh, this this individual's dynamic range. You know, Lieutenant Jared Nash is described as twenty to twenty-five. He's a junior SGC team member, officer material, but green and rough around the edges. He's every teenage girl's fantasy, like a college quarterback thrown into his first pro game. He is thrust into the role of leader well before he's ready for the responsibility, and must learn to take command, earn respect through action, 
and managed the diverse personalities on the ship to keep everyone alive. Like Jason Bourne, he is skilled and well-trained, however he is mentally unprepared for the urgency of the situation. I have nothing to say about this character. <laughs> you know, I don't have much of anything to say either. He's actually kind of described as semi-generic, I think. Yeah. He's the one yeah. who could maybe get killed off. You think it's going to be one of these six to be killed off in the first episode? I don't think the first episode, but I do think that more than SG-1, at least, Stargate Universe's characters are, are going to be a little bit more at risk. You don't think he's Ford, do you? No, I don't think he's Ford. Ford's an interesting example, because it, it was... I think with Atlantis, they wanted Ford to succeed, and they gave him a year, and he, he kind of didn't. He didn't impress the powers that be, so mm-hmm. then they decided to write him out. I don't think that they're yeah. that they're going that way with, with Nash. You know, again, there's not a whole lot to say. Yeah, it all depends on who they hire. You know, I mean, this is this is really we're just looking at one half of the equation here. Now, even uh, not even that. You know, you know so. who he sounds like. He sounds like Lieutenant Elliot, again from Proving Ground. I would enjoy seeing Courtney in this role. Frankly, yeah, Courtney Stevens played that role, and uh, Lieutenant Nash is is that character who is uh, kind of coming into his own as a team leader. He's got a little bit of experience with Stargate Command, but he he's green, it's, it says here. He's rough around the edges, so he's got to take control and and take control of his team in order to keep them safe. Are you surprised at the number of uh, former SG team members there are on this team? I mean, it's half of them. We have a former SG team leader. We have an SGC field medic. Uh, yes. And we have an SGC team member. These people have been at Stargate Command before. Mm-hmm. And the only one that from Atlantis who was that we know was at Stargate Command before besides Rodney was Ford. Um, but it never went into his history with, with uh, SGC. I think that makes sense. I mean, yeah. again, we don't really know the context for which we're going through on this mission that, that puts us on the destiny. Um, I wouldn't necessarily assume that it's like Atlantis, like we figure out that this is out there, and then we find an address and how to get to it, and so we put together a team. Because this, this is obviously not... On supplies. Yeah. yeah, this is not the best and the brightest that we're going to send through to Atlantis. This is... Yeah. I mean, every character on here except for Colonel Young is uh, a young guy or gal. They're, these are all described as, as 20s, and most of them as early 20s. One of them is a is a civilian, the daughter of a senator. Uh, so I think that the, the situation that gets them there is going to be very different from Atlantis. And then we have Ron Psychostasiak. That's going to be an interesting last name to get used to. Uh, 20, all ethnicities they're looking for. Uh, he's a Marine, big, strong, and silent. Indeed. Mm, I, wonder, I wonder who that sounds like. But you want him on your side. You don't want him mad at you. Sounds like a combination of a couple of guys I can think of. He, but uh, he lacks control over his temper in non-combat situations. His past is a mystery, but it's clear something dark formed this hard shell around him. Yet there must also be some moral center, because otherwise he'd kill everyone around him. <laughs> think Eric Bana's character Hoot in Black Hawk Down. I haven't seen Black Hawk Down, but I do think that Ron, Ron Stasiak is... is has the potential to be a really interesting character. And this big, strong, silent type that they had with Teal'c on SG-1 is something that they decided actually not to have on Atlantis mm-hmm. when it launched. And then uh, they had to sort of retool and bring in Ronan in Season 2. This is obviously going to be the the fortified team member, like, presence, to, to give the team its presence on on the universe. Yeah. You know? I mean, not only he is he at the end of this list, you know, but uh, with our experience with 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 Ronan and with Teal'c, you know, this is a person that's usually standing behind the group and making them all look very small. Yeah, I so. like this guy so far. I hope I hope too as well. You know, um, I think uh, I think there's a lot of potential here. You know, one of the things that I'm curious about is because they're going to be cu- they're all human, and because they're going to be cut off uh, from their from Earth, you know, how are we going to explore the the these the past of of these folks? Is it going to is it going to again be like Lost, you know, where we see vignettes and flashbacks? I'm curious as to how they're going to approach it. Oh, I doubt that they're going to take the the Lost formula for storytelling and do flashbacks. But you know, it would be nice if we could have some episodes written in such a way that we don't 
have to go back and visit Earth and encounter somebody's family member in order to learn more about their past. It also occurred to me, um, and a lot of and a lot of uh, readers on the forum, that there is no alien in this group. Yeah, there's no Teal'c or Tela or Vala or Ronan. Now, and we know that uh, the areas of space that that they're going to be exploring a lot of the time are um, often devoid of life, huh. as or life as we know it. And uh, energy is going to be uh, a real problem out there in the deep space and in, in deep voids. So, and we also I'm, know that the ship is on a pre-programmed course that we cannot alter, and uh, we're not necessarily going to be able to stay in one galaxy for real long. Yeah, there's might, a lot of what ifs. Yeah, that might go away to explaining why there's no alien presence. But yeah, these are all humans from Earth. Let's see, we've got a 40-something commander, and then uh, everyone else is described as in their 20s so far. Again, mm-hmm. we'll see how casting goes. All this is subject to change. Uh, we have two women and four men. What do you think of this balance? I think there's more military than uh, than they were uh, originally expecting, you know? I mean, we've got one, two... Yeah, we've got half, half the team, except for the women, are, are military, and maybe... Uh, uh, well, the field well, the captain. I take it yeah, back. So Mary four John of the is six. A captain. I think yeah, Chloe is you know, the only civilian on here, isn't he? She. Total slacker, utter genius, mathematics computer. Uh, Hitchcock, I think, is a civilian too, Hitchcock. isn't it? Okay. Yeah. So Chloe, so, the the cute senator's daughter, and Eli Hitchcock, the uh, slacker hacker genius, are <laughs> two civilians. Yeah, I think ultimately we are still talking about uh, a mission that originates from Stargate Command. Okay. Which is a military, obviously. Okay. You know, overall, looking at this, what surprised me when it came out was that five of the six are in their 20s. And I think almost all of them are described as 20 to 25. That uh, is a very young skew. Ron Stasiak is, is described as 20, and Chloe Carpenter is described as 20-ish. Uh, everybody else is 20 to 25, and I was surprised to see the cast that young People who have listened to the podcast in previous weeks have heard me say that I suspected that younger meant probably cast members in their 20s and 30s instead of 30s and 40s. Uh, So far, it looks like, obviously with the exception of Colonel Young, that we're looking at young 20s. My age, specifically. (laughs) Yeah. I'm 25, so it's going to be odd to go to set and and talk with all these people and they're younger than I am. (laughs) I'm, I'm kind of of two minds on this. On the one hand... It makes me a little bit nervous to see the cast of characters really is this young. Um, Again, it it depends on who they cast and it depends on how they write them. Because on the other side of the coin is that, hey, you know, there are a lot of really great actors out there who fit these bills uh, and who can deliver a show that is really serious and interesting and dramatic and compelling, like... Uh, like a Battlestar. You know, look at some of the cast members on Battlestar, like Grace Park. Uh, Just because the characters are described as 20 to 25 does not mean you're looking at Dawson's Creek. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a a level of maturity that that doesn't necessarily have to do with age, but experience. And uh, a lot of these... A lot of these people do look to be pretty raw in experience, but uh, I think... I think... Well, most of them will be able to handle themselves quite, um, quite reasonably. Gateworld features. One of the standouts in the recent Atlantis episode, Whispers, is actress Janina Gavankar, who played the gun-toting, bubblegum-chewing Sergeant Dusty Mera. We got on the phone with Janina last week for a new interview, which is now available on the website, and here's a clip. I like sort of reached into the confines of my mind and like pulled out all the things I've been a fan of sci-fi wise and I was like my god I've loved sci-fi since the beginning of time and I didn't even realize it until now I grew up reading you know journey to this uh, what am I saying journey to the center of the earth and uh thousand leagues and uh all of the Douglas Adams books and you know all of the Michael Crichton books I read uh some of I read uh, Sphere way yes. too young. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> it really, actually, you're kind of a wimp, Janina. Get over it. Aw, that's it's okay. True. It's a sphere. Big whoop. <laughs> Look for the complete audio interview on GateWorld now or subscribe to the GateWorld Interviews podcast on iTunes. 
GateWorld's very first interview with Stargate SG-1 actor Gary Jones has been a long time in coming, and it's up on the site right now. David sat down with Gary at GateCon 2008 for a 22-minute video interview. Gary talks about the impact of Stargate on his own career and on the industry at large, and shares his memories of the late Don S. Davis, with whom he worked and shared so much. Visit GateWorld.net now to watch. Now airing in GateWorld Play, our daily video channel, is our review of Stargate Continuum's score. Get a taste of my favorite moments from Joel Goldsmith's beautiful score from the newest SG-1 movie, and find out what we think of this CD release. Watch the full six-minute review on GateWorld. To order the Stargate Continuum soundtrack, just visit GateWorldStore.com. Although we recently published an interview with Daniel Jackson actor Michael Shanks, we like the rule that says it's never too soon to do it again. Chad Colvin sat down with Michael once more at Creation Entertainment's convention in Chicago at the end of August, and the two chatted more about Stargate Continuum and the actor's appearance on this Friday's episode of Stargate Atlantis. Here's an exclusive clip just for GateWorld podcast listeners. Now the Continuum is out, we can talk a little bit more about it without the red tape. Were you happy with the finished product and uh, Daniel's role within it? I loved it. I mean, um, um, I thought that... Certainly, uh, it was one of the strongest things I think the show's ever done. Um, uh, I, I, I was, I knew reading the script uh, that it was a, a good show, um, and then when I saw the first screening of it, I absolutely um, loved the finished product. It, it was everything we could have hoped for given the the time that we shot it in and the budget. And I'm not even saying that facetiously. I'm saying it, we, we we exceeded expectations in that regard. Um, I certainly don't think. I think there's a lot more stories to tell and, and a lot of stuff down the pipe, but in terms of um, uh, a good testament to the people that work there and what that show's capable of, I think it's a, a great calling card for it. GateWorld's complete interview with Michael Shanks arrives later this week. The main discussion. Today's main discussion topic is Tracker, the ninth episode of season five of Stargate Atlantis. This is a Keller heavy episode. David, what did you think of it? Let me put it this way. Let me put it this way. You know, I I I usually um, you know think about episodes the week before they come out. You know, it's it's Monday or whatever, and I'm thinking to myself, what's what's going to be on this Friday? Oh, Daniel Jackson's going to be on Atlantis this Friday, a new enemy. Mm-hmm. And and for Tracker, it was what's going to be on this Friday? Oh, they're in the woods. I expected not a whole lot from it that was new and exciting. And f- frankly, this episode failed to disappoint in that regard. It did mm. some interesting things. I liked the character of Kirik a great deal. I thought he was I thought he was dynamic and fascinating and interesting. Um, but there was a lot about this episode that I did not like. I have to say, uh, as much as I love Carl Binder, love his ability to write characters, I, I was not particularly um, particularly satisfied with this episode. And uh, up there with uh, Broken Ties is not a particular one that I'm tremendously excited to see anytime soon again. I think you and I are on the same page uh, all season long so far. I like Killer's character, uh, and I like where she's come over the last year. Uh, I do too. I like Carl Binder and uh, the way that he writes characters, but you know, this one from the description and from the spoilers that we'd seen was was not one I was tremendously excited about, uh, and it was it was unsurprising in that regard. There were some cool things about it, which we'll talk about, of course, but uh, yeah, this one uh, didn't really do it for me. I was planning to go back with a stopwatch. Um, on the Ronan and Rodney scenes. One of the things that I will say up front that I am tremendously happy for with this episode was Mm -hmm. that they did not spend time on Ronan and Rodney bickering about who was going to get Keller. Mm -hmm. They left that to the very last scene, and I really appreciated that. But we would see Keller and Kirik and stopping and talking or whatever, and then they would move on. And then Ronan and Rodney would come in and say, she laid here. And Ronan would say, and she was bound here, and they did this, and they did that. And the entire time I'm thinking, why the heck are we wasting time on this? We, we know that they were here. We know that this happened. Move on. Let's, let's talk about yeah, something it's, else. It's demonstrating that Ronan is the tracker, and Ronan is, is really good at figure, figuring things out. And, uh, yeah, it, that's, establishing that is great, but that was really, it seemed like, about the first half of the episode was just that. We're bouncing back and forth between the two pairs, and uh, Kirik and Keller move forward a little bit and their story advances he finally uh you know he lets her scan him and then he he tells her about Celise the young girl uh, that moves forward gradually but then we jump back to Ronan and Rodney and they're just 
tracking, and here's and more tracking. They're investigating again, and I and again, I'm thinking to myself, why are we wasting our time on this? You know this, what it reminded know? me of, actually. The tracking part reminded me of uh, Princess Bride. I have not seen that. Oh, you're fired. Uh, there's a character in the Princess Bride who uh, is tracking the the captured princess, and it it does this jumping back and forth. The, the princess gets taken to the next stage of the story, and then it jumps back to uh, the prince who's tracking her, and he analyzes the scene, he tells exactly what happens, and then he has some some little quip that he says. The th- I mean, we, we know that Ronan can best Sherlock Holmes. You know, we, we know this about him. We know that he can track, and we know that he's going to get it right every time. You know, and the, 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 the funny asides with the, uh, with the traps and everything, that was kind of interesting. But by and large, those moments were boring, you know, and I was expecting so much more, you know. And the other thing that really irritated me was this is season five now. In season five, at the very first episode, Daniel is wielding a P90 like he knows that sucker. And him and Jack and Sam are... Are, are are going backwards down the, the hallway on the gold mothership uh, mm. voy- uh, trying to get away from the replicators. You know? Yeah, you're talking and about enemies. Rodney, right, enemies. And Rodney still can't handle a gun. And he's... I, by now, he should be able to. By now, he should have had some training, and by now, he shouldn't be turning his head away and firing his gun randomly. He's very dangerous. Yeah. He is not safe. He does and, a little bit better. He does manage to take out one race. Parts of me never want to see him change, but parts of me, uh, I think there are parts of him that do need to evolve and improve a little bit, especially by now. Mm. You know, working with Shepard and working with Ronan, you think he would have picked up a little bit more. And that was one of the other things that just kind of just irritated me, mm. you know, because he is, he is not someone who I would want watching my back. He's just not, mm-hmm. you know, and if he can't handle himself with a gun, then he shouldn't have one. No, I, you're or, right. This this contrast between Ronan and Rodney, I think, is really what this episode was. That was probably the yeah. germ of where this story came from originally. Was these guys are, as far as our team goes, these are the two most opposite. Why well, Why I brought Daniel up earlier was at the, at the beginning. Daniel couldn't wield a gun either, you know, and it was very flimsy. He would he his hand would shake, and you know that that was one of the funny things about uh, in in the season five episode. Uh, 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 the Sentinel with Christina Cox. Yeah, which end of the bullets go in again? And he's and he's holding a Beretta. You know, <laughs> I mean that that was just that was just great. So I I hope that that you know Rodney at some point begins to evolve with with his uh, his uh, weapon wielding abilities. You know, <laughs> mm, to a degree. To a degree, that's exactly right. You know, and he did he and there there was a little bit. You know, he did take down a couple Wraith, but it just. You know, he's he's not very safe with a weapon. <laughs> yeah. He's taking baby steps forward. So in in twenty years, he'll be very proficient with a sidearm. Now, Kirik and uh, a little bit of expansion on the Wraith Runner mythology was one thing that I really liked about this episode. Obviously, a lot hinges on a, a major guest character like Kirik, the Runner. We learn more about the Wraith. The, the there's sort of a special special class or special office of Wraith who go out and hunt the runners, and they are called, appropriately enough, hunters. And we learn things like uh, not every tracking implant is created equal. Ronan's was really easy to get out. This one is fused to his spine and his brainstem. I wonder if that has something to do with Ronan. You know, that's the first thing that occurred to me. It was like, well, um, the Wraith do not want runners getting these things popped out again. I, I, I imagine Ronan's tracking device was an earlier model. And uh, either Kirik was captured after Ronan was freed, or um, he had uh, an upgrade, because they they do not want these runners to remove their tracking devices. So mm-hmm. Kirik's character, though, I think really worked. The actor who played him, Mike Doppa, did a great job. You're not from the village, are you? I've never noticed you, and I've pretty much met everyone. You even from this planet? You're the one who brought the wraith here. They're after you. Why? I'm a runner. You know about runners? One of the men I'm traveling with, he used to be one. Used to be. It's impossible. Runners don't stop being runners. Yeah, well, this one did. Yeah, well, how? Take me to him and we'll tell you. 
I promise. Look, we don't have to be enemies. Nice try. And it really, with him and with all the running through the woods, reminded me of Dead Man Switch from the third season of SG-1. Yeah. And the Eris Bot character, who was obviously on, on the other side of the, of the running there. He was, he was the bounty hunter. Uh, but he's got that really strong, intimidating presence that I thought really worked. Right, yeah. No, this, that character was very successful and did work really well. Definitely a high point for that episode. I'm glad that they didn't kill him off. I'm glad that he got away, and he's now had his tracking implant uh, disabled, hopefully permanently, so he may, if he can escape that initial onslaught of the wraith who chased him through the gate, uh, you know, he may be out there, and he may be a potential to see again. Obviously not this season, but maybe maybe sometime in Stargate's future, in a future Atlantis movie, this is this is a great sort of character to have running around out there. Yep, he owes Keller and Atlantis, ex- by extension, a debt of gratitude, you know? I mean, kidnap someone and she disables your tracking device. It was also a great leap of faith on his part that he allowed her to do that. Um, that relationship evolved very, very quickly, a little fast, but I think overall it made sense. Another strength of this episode, I think, is Keller. Now, a lot of people who don't care for the character, obviously you're not going to care for an episode that's centered around her. But I think what Tracker does really well is it illustrates how far she has come. This episode is not missing from season four. She's not cowering in the corner, and she's not having to be continually affirmed and consoled. Uh, she's, She's with it. She's not freaking out. She's not whining. Uh, And she gets to kick a little butt. Yeah, in a lot of ways, it was missing part two in that regard. You know, I mean, it was... uh, I mean, Carl Binder told us specifically, you know, one of the reasons he set out to do with this episode was to show how that character was evolving, and he definitely did that. And I kind of wonder if this had been the Keller of season four, if they had started with her a little bit more tough and a little bit more mature in her experience with these sorts of extreme circumstances if maybe the the fans would have received her a little bit better i know what they were trying to do they were i mean they so many of the characters are all so seasoned and they know what they're handling you know i I thought it was a breath of fresh air to bring someone in um who uh didn't always know what they were doing but but figured themselves out pretty quickly you know it didn't it wasn't allowed to linger yeah i think she was much more of an every man or every woman character than anybody else on Stargate. Any other main character that we've seen on either SG-1 or Atlantis. There's always the, the everyman quality of a Jack O'Neill or a, a John Shepard who's you know a wisecracker who is someone that we you know you might know somebody who's kind of like that. But I think Keller what's always interested me about her character is that she is utterly realistic in that if I was being chased through the woods by cannibals who were going to eat my brain, I would probably be a little whiny too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, we talked already a little bit about Ronan and McKay together. They really took a different route than I was expecting. And uh, in terms of like the, the McKay-Keller-Ronan-Keller relationships, I'm glad that they didn't spend a little too much time on that. On the love triangle, you mean? Yeah. Um, I think it would have been really dull really quickly and very un-Stargate-y. Um, but uh, again, I, I do think they spent a little too much time tracking her, and I wish they would have, uh, you know, spent a little bit more time learning to understand each other better. Yeah. So it might have been interesting if there had been something going on between Ronan and Rodney as they were marching, other than just Ronan's upset because McKay is slowing him down, and McKay is upset because Ronan is not taking his skill set seriously and and is is not treating him as as part of the quote-unquote team. Uh, yeah. You know, other than that, there wasn't really anything going on between them, so it was, was kind of rote to watch all these scenes of, of them looking at boot prints in the in the dirt. Mm-hmm. Now, what did you think of this final scene between Rodney and Ronan? Rodney goes to him and asks, basically, what are your intentions? Well, they're much more direct in terms of their love storytelling than they used to be on Stargate. I'll, I'll give them that. I think it's going to make things interesting. Uh, between these two, and uh, it's it's nice to have something going on between Rodney and Ronan, you know. I, I'll take anything at this point, practically. I'm not giddy to find out where this goes, but uh, it, it's going to be something nice to watch. I'm certainly going to tune in and see what happens. 
I thought it was weird that Ronan says that he has no intentions and he's not romantically interested. And then when McKay turns around to leave, he says, wait. And he, then he basically tells him that, yeah, maybe maybe I do. Uh, the second time that I watched that, I thought, you know what? It really looks to me like Ronan's just messing with him. I don't think he really has any intentions to pursue Keller. I think he's just messing with McKay because he likes to watch him squirm. <laughs> Well, it doesn't take much to make Rodney squirm. This is kind of random, but I was just thinking one of my other beefs about this episode is how vulnerable Keller was going off to this planet uh, and getting kidnapped. I mean, it seems to be fairly routine that she goes and visits this planet. She's apparently been there before and gotten to know all the people. Uh, But is it lax protocol for Atlantis to send somebody like that off by themselves I mean Rodney and Ronan just basically volunteered on their off days why was there not a team why did, wasn't Major Lorne's team sent there to escort her that is curious you know and it and it shows that uh, the writers have have not made viewers very acquainted with Atlantis protocol um, we do know that this was an errand of mercy and uh, she was just going there to um to prescribe some medication, as far as I could tell. You know, we've seen a lot of these sort of scenarios in the past 11 or 12 years, especially on SG-1, where SG-1 arrives on a planet that Stargate Command has already made contact with, and there's another team there that knows the villagers, or something like that. Uh, So it just kind of struck me as odd that there would be any sort of mission that's just sort of Keller gets your stuff together and wanders through the gate. I don't know if that was because they were wanting to set it, set the situation up so that there was, I mean, so it would give, it would give Carrick ample opportunity to kidnap her or whatnot. So I'm, I'm not specifically sure. Yeah, it's. So. I mean, it certainly would have been interesting if, if there would have been a, a kind of a random SG team there, or I guess they're not SG team, they're AR teams, Atlantis Recon, <laughs> and um, you know, people that we don't know who can get killed off and actually see the kidnap take place where he jumps in with his teleporter, grabs her, and jumps out before the team can do anything. And then maybe you have uh, some of those guys going through the woods and and maybe even getting caught in the traps, getting killed. Yeah, Some of them heading back to the gate and getting killed by the Wraith when the Wraith came through. Overall, what did you think of Tracker? Uh, Six out of ten. It was a decent episode, um, more like, in my opinion, the, the seasons two and three episodes seem to be mm-hmm. kind of kind of average. It's, it's not – it was, it, it was a good show. It was a good show. But is it one that I'm particularly eager to see anytime soon? No, it wasn't. Yeah. It was – I would say it was competent. As far as Atlantis goes, it was – Atlantis is a great show. We love Atlantis. Uh, so it's – I think it has a higher standard to live up to. Um, but Ronin is a good tracker. You know, Ronin is outdoorsy. Is not, I think, not strong enough to support an entire episode. Once we got into the last, I don't know, 15 or 20 minutes of it, where where there's a lot more going on, then it suddenly becomes a really interesting and compelling episode, and I think Mm -hmm. the ending is great, and Kirik's sacrifice is great. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I do too. uh, Yeah, 5 out of 10, 6 out of 10, maybe. Um, Just kind of middle of the road. Uh, I didn't dislike it, but it didn't really have anything. It didn't have a whole lot going for it. Uh, I also think, you brought this up in the past, uh, there have been a lot of episodes, this season especially, without the team, without the whole team. Yeah, and Rachel now, wasn't there. That was another beef of mine again. Uh, Shepard was basically not there. I mean, Shepard's role to bookend at the beginning and end of the episode was basically the same thing that Rodney did in Whispers. So mm-hmm. now, what strikes me is we've had three in a row. Whispers was mostly Shepard and Beckett. The Queen was mostly Taylor and Todd. You know, the team didn't really do a whole lot in that. And now Tracker is Keller and Ronan and McKay, so I am ready for the team to get back together. Yeah, you know, you, you don't seem to see the entire team unless they're, like, on Atlantis anymore. When, it, when we have these mostly exclusive off-world episodes, it's just a few pieces of them. And, you know, you have to ask yourself, you know, what what kind of a team are they running? You know, when there's when there's not all of them. Yeah, it almost makes me think that they just wanted to save some time and shoot these at the same time and have the cast members broken up. You're listening to the Gateworld podcast. Listener mail. Last week we asked you what you think of Jennifer Keller's character and what you thought of Tracker, and we have some mail in the mailbag. David, who's first? Harry is first. 
Tracker was a superb episode after the last two being disappointing for me. It seems rare for me to become investigated with one-shot characters like I did with Mike Dopud's Kirik, mixed with the enjoyable dynamic of McKay and the mostly underused Ronan and the bits of Keller we saw. I really remembered what made me a Stargate fan this week. Well, it's great to hear that somebody really enjoyed Tracker. I really have no problem with people enjoying episodes that I don't particularly like. I'm glad that they find things in it. Track writes in and says, Why does no one like Keller? What has she done to be so hated by many? Personally, I think she's a great character with lots of potential. I have I have no personal qualms against Keller. It's, it's one of those things, you know. Is it, is it because of Paul McGillian? Is it because of Carson, you know? Yeah. I mean, people, people describe Keller as a Mary Sue, and, you know, it's just... Okay. <laughs> Let's uh, not throw Mary Sue in there yet, because that's coming up in the next letter. Oh, okay. Mag. Many see Keller as a Mary Sue, and that Mary Sues aren't liked that much except for people who project in them. What okay. is a Mary Sue? David, tell me what a Mary Sue is. A Mary Sue is a character that is favored by the writers. Uh, Wesley Crusher from Next Gen was described as a Mary Sue for a very long time, a, a character who fulfills all of the writers' expectations. And uh, a lot of people don't particularly like somebody who the the writer tends to channel himself or herself and his own yeah his own desires yeah. and aspirations. Wesley was actually created by and named after Gene Roddenberry. Carter for for, uh, for uh, f- the first few episodes at the very beginning was very much a, a Mary Sue. You know, uh, some say that she was throughout the entire show. You know, it just depends on your likes or dislikes. Critter says, "I love Jewel State." but I think Keller would have been better used as a minor background player. I'm not sure what the point of her being there is, other than to have another girl character to write for. Each time I see Keller on screen, I feel like she's taking away time that could have been used to explore Taylor's character, or Ronan, Lauren, or even Zelenka further. That is an interesting point. You know, this, I think, goes back to the Mary Sue thing. It's really difficult for writers to introduce a main character after the show has been going for a few years. Keller was introduced... Uh, yeah, I mean, she was she was supporting, but taking over for for Paul McGillian's role as as the main doctor, she was fairly major. Uh, it's got to be really difficult for the writers to introduce a, a main or semi-main character without it feeling like a Mary Sue. And difficult for the poor actor too, shall we say? Yeah, because you are taking away that screen time from other mm-hmm. characters who obviously Taylor was not very well developed, in my opinion, by the time Keller came around at the end of season three. In a lot of ways, I think Keller's had more development than Taylor has. Yeah, I you know, think that's true. Because Taylor's always been that woman warrior princess, and she's never really deviated from that. She's never had to build up to anything, and Keller has. You know, there there's been character growth there for Taylor. It's always been kind of Taylor. And Mac Jackson writes in again and says, "I didn't think I'd like Keller when I first saw her, and resented that she was replacing our Doctor Beckett. However, she has since grown on me." Instead of her staying the wimpy, cliché girl character, she has since proven to be much more diverse and not cliché at all. She has limits and faults, but is also strong when she needs to be. I think that is a very round, realistic answer. Yeah. Good letter. We have one more letter on uh, a non-Keller topic. Tim B. writes in about crossover characters for Stargate Universe. He says, has any thought been given to having Jonas Quinn as a part of the new team? I thought Corrin did a great job with that character, and he's one I'd like to see more of. Plus, he could always bring in references to his time with SG-1. Just a thought. What do you guys think about that? David? I would be happy to see Corrin again. I, I never had any bones against Jonas. I thought he was a fascinating character. You know, a nice, a nice uh, sidebar uh, when Daniel was away. It should be noted that, that Daniel has always been my favorite uh, SG-1 character. Mm. But uh, in, in, and in the year that, that Michael was gone, it was um, a little bit trying for me. But I, I accepted I accepted Corrin with open arms and uh, knew that uh, he and Jonas had nothing to do with Michael's departure. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't, I wasn't going to scorn him for it. So I, I accepted that character. And yes, it had some flaws. But uh, yeah, I'd like to see the character come back at some point, And I'd like to see him grow more. I like Jonas's character a lot. I thought that they did a great job with him in season six under very difficult circumstances, uh, and his his return for a few episodes in season seven. Uh, those first two episodes, Fallen and Homecoming, I think were great episodes for Jonas. 
for him sort of finding his his way in the world and his place on the team. Unfortunately, the result was he didn't really have a place on the team. He was being called back home. So I did like the character, but I thought that his exit was rather unceremonious. That that goodbye scene in the gate room, which I just watched a couple weeks ago, was very much had the feeling of don't let the iris hit your ass on the way out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to see him come back. I don't know if I would actually like to see him as a regular character, though, as a main character for Stargate Universe. It would just seem, from what we know of the show so far, uh, the story of being stuck on the Destiny would seem a little out of place to me. Yeah. Let's get Jonas back in. Oh, no, he got stuck out there with the team. Oh, well. Yeah, but I would love to see him come back. I'm not satisfied with the ending for his character. And we have a couple of items of voicemail to play for this week's episode. Hello, um, my name is James. I'm from Liverpool. I'm just wondering about the Stargate Atlantis cancellation. Well, obviously, I believe it was the wrong decision to make. I think the show could have had a lot more viewing time, a lot more stories to be told. But Stargate Atlantis, it seems like it's been cut off in time almost. It hasn't been given time to to end the show correctly and, and to finish off the, the story arcs. Hi, this is Brian. I'm calling from Topley, British Columbia, and the following is in regards to Meet the Stargate Universe team from GateWorld.net. I have read these character profiles, and from what it says, I don't think I really want to. These characters, with the exception of Eli Hitchcock, all sound like someone you could watch on the OC or 90210. I figured that the characters were going to be young, but I was also hoping that the producers of the show would keep Stargate Stargate, not some teen drama that I could watch on some other channel. I still plan to watch the series when it airs, but if you want my opinion, I still believe that Stargate Atlantis should go on for at least another season to tie up any loose ends that the series has left unfinished. Thanks to everyone for writing in and for calling. This week's listener question, we've had SG-1 characters appear over on Atlantis, we've had Atlantis characters on SG-1, there is a lot of talk of the possibility of crossovers maybe on Stargate Universe down the road. So the question is, do you like crossover episodes, and which one has been your favorite, and why? Or, with casting for Stargate Universe now underway, we'd love to hear whether you think anyone from SG-1 or Atlantis should be given a permanent spot on the new show. Upcoming on the GateWorld podcast, next week we're talking about the first half of the mid-season two-parter. First Contact is finally here with our new bad guys, and Michael Shanks returning as Dr. Daniel Jackson. Daniel. Atlantis is off on October 3rd for the two-hour premiere of Amanda Tapping's new show, Sanctuary. So instead of a new episode, we are still looking for a topic to discuss in the October 7th podcast. There's been some great suggestions so far. And then on October 14th, we'll be back to talk about Part 2, The Lost Tribe. Thanks for joining us for this week's podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. Call the GateWorld Podcast hotline at 616 712 1647. You can also post on the podcast feedback thread. In this episode, we talked about Tracker and also ran down the cast of characters for Stargate Universe. We gave you an exclusive preview with our interview with Michael Shanks. And for links to everything that we talked about today, head to GateWorld and look for the episode number 12 show notes. From GateWorld.net, this is Darren Sumner. I'm David Reed. And you've been listening to the GateWorld Podcast. Podcast.